Well, welcome to part two of this uh, question and answer Christmas podcast. Uh, I hope you've already listened to part one. Uh, it will make a lot more sense if you do. <laughs> um, but without further ado, let's get back to the questions of part two of the podcast. Okay, so we're now on to general karate questions. So the first one we've got is from Terry Monksfield, and he asks about the impact that other Japanese martial arts had uh, when karate went to Japan. I done karate when it went to Japan. Um, so he said, Kano been my first thought, but were there others? So, I mean, first thing is, Kano, uh, the founder of judo, huge influence on karate there that can't be underestimated. Um, judo is very popular. You know, Funakoshi and Co. see this and then realize that for karate to enjoy that degree of popularity, it needs to follow what judo is doing. So we see that shift away from fighting to uh, developing strong minds and bodies. We add do to the end of karate, so it's karate do, not just karate anymore. Uh, we see the uh, adoption of the judo uniform. So a lightweight judo uniform is what the um, karate suit is. Uh, we see the adoption of the judo grading system, the belt system, the Q dan grade system. Uh, later on, we see the, the, the method of competition being adopted with the Iponza Muzari method of scoring. Um, and a big thing, you know, the ethos. The ethos is huge. So judo's ethos, this idea of developing strong minds and strong bodies um, being the primary function of it, uh, really uh, influenced the karate guys. Because, uh, again, if, if you're not a judo practitioner, you know, and a lot of you will be doing karate and only karate um if you want to understand karate you should really read kano's works not so much the technical you know he's out to do a throw stuff all although that's interesting and valuable but more his general outlook and his general ideas because when i read kano's stuff i go oh so that's what the karate guys were trying to do <laughs> uh, kano explains it better and he has a very clear vision and you can see what the karate guys have tried to do They've tried to emulate, but they don't quite make it work, I think, with karate. It never quite makes that leap. So, um, so, so Kano's an obvious one and a huge one, you know, massive influence on, on, on karate. But I, I think generally, just all the other ones, it's like Kendo, let's take Kendo for example. So, Kendo's another popular martial art, and if you look at the early days of, of karate in, in Japan, we see the introduction of Kendo style di distances which had an influence on the understanding of bunkai. Everything gets too big, it's too far apart. Uh, and that starts to come from there. We see the kendo-style footwork, that edging and shuffling, before the explosive movement forwards. We see that starting to be emulated in, in the karate too. But we also see things like, like Japanese martial arts, a common thing was styles. So what happens is when karate hits the Japanese shores, you know, one of the first questions is, okay, what styles have you got? And they didn't really have any. <laughs> there was just karate. So they just invent this idea of, oh, shurite, nahate, and tamarite, which is just like, you know, taking the name of your town and village and sticking tay on the end. They were almost reluctant. Funakoshi didn't like the notion of styles. He said that. He said, I've heard myself and my colleagues referred to as the Shotokan school, but I strongly object to this attempt at classification. Unfortunately for Funakoshi, that was one thing he just couldn't avoid. If you do a Japanese martial art, the Japanese martial arts have styles. So therefore we see the formulation of those uh, those styles as well. So yeah, I mean, I think if that happens, as soon as you move the, the, anything from culture to culture, that culture has an effect on it. 
So that martial culture of the time and the general, you know, culture of Japan at that time definitely had a huge influence on on karate, just as it did when it came to the West, you know. So when karate comes to the West, one of the things that quickly gets added on is boxing style footwork. Because that's how we move and we're very familiar with that. And then, of course, that gets used in competition and it's very successful and that gets emulated the world over back even in Japan. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, it's, karate is constantly evolving. Um, and definitely when it made that shift to Japan, the prevailing Japanese ethos and the way that the martial arts were practiced there definitely had a huge impact. Uh, judo, definitely number one, biggest influence. But I would say certainly uh, the jujitsu and the, ju uh, the sort of the kendo of the time that had an influence too. We interrupt this podcast to bring you some breaking news. Now that the controversy about the press conference has been laid to rest, the OFC has announced that genuine ninja warrior Buru Tawagoto will be fighting OFC veteran Maximilian Hammer later this evening. Both fighters are said to be on their way to the OFC heptagon as we speak. Stay tuned to this channel for more on this story as it happens. So next question is from uh, Gary Hood. He says, uh, do you think that modern karate styles that focus on like kickboxing, self-defense, freestyle, etc., are losing some of the originality and some of the martial side of the art? So um, they could be. I mean, it, it depends on how they're, uh, they're practicing. I know that uh, within karate as I practice it, we practice hooks and uppercuts and we combine that with kicks and a certain part of what we do would look kickboxing-like to some people, I guess. Uh, but I still think that we're a very traditional system. And um, we practice all the kata and the kions and all the bunkai and all that kind of stuff. But I get there would be other styles who would totally moved away from the kata, totally moved away from self-defense, and are now practicing effectively kick kickboxing under a karate label. So maybe they have lost some of the, their roots and some of the... Uh, the more pragmatic side of what they do. But but again, this is one of the things that we have with karate as a term, that it's... Uh, uh, Gavin Mulholland said it's a bit like, and I like this, he said it's a bit like athletics. So if you take the term athletics, well, what does that mean? Are you a marathon runner or are you a shot putter? Because you know, they're two very different things, but you're both athletes. So I think it's the same with karate now. Karate can mean lots of different things to lots of different people. And while everyone wants to claim ownership of the title, I think it's a, the ship has sailed on that one, I think. So there are um, some modern styles of karate that are losing their roots, perhaps, and others that are steadfast to keeping them. Karate is always evolving and moving, and that leads us to the next question by Arichi Ogle, which he said, In karate, where does tradition stop and modern innovation start, if it ever does? I think it's a great question, because in my view, it, it never stops. The tradition, if you look truly at your karate, has been one of constant change and innovation. That's the tradition. Um, not one generation has passed karate on unchanged. Every single one of them, whether they want to admit it or not. But we can look back in the history books and we can see this. Every single one of them has changed things. And like Funakoshi said that... Um, uh, that the karate that he was practicing towards the end of his life, he said, was a long way indeed from the karate that he practiced as a boy. And he said this was a good thing. He said um, times change, the world changes, and obviously martial arts must change too. Funakoshi acknowledged this. But I think once you move away from function, you've then got to say, well, how do we measure progress? And the way that some schools and organizations chose to measure progress was the ability to adhere to a set of rules. You know, this is the way we do things. So if your hand is here 
that's right, and if it's an inch higher or lower, it's wrong. So it becomes all very, um, very dogmatic, and that's presented as tradition. You know, this is the traditional way to do it, but that's not it. Tradition means adhering to a long-established procedure. That's what the word means. And the long-established procedure in karate has been one of constant change and innovation. Every single generation has, has, has taken what the previous one gave it and altered it in some way. And like most things, those good changes will stick around and those bad changes will get lost over time. So, But it's a great in-depth question, that. But I, I think we've just got this secular thing of tradition. The tradition is innovation. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Yeah, the tradition is innovation. Uh, so the next question's from uh, Danny Wallace. He says, uh, do you think MMA helped karate rediscover itself? And I, I would say that it did. It wasn't the only thing. I think it was one of many things that converged at just the right time. So prior to MMA, we had, you know, there was a lot of people teaching and practicing pragmatic karate, but there were maybe a, a smaller niche side of karate. Just before the first UFC kicked off here in the UK, we had what we call the the reality revolution, which is when uh, Jeff Thompson and Peter Constein were the guys who spearheaded that. You know, fortunate enough to call both of those men my, um, you know, teachers and inspiration really, and they helped get people to see that there was a fault here. The way that a lot of people were practicing was not practical; it wasn't functional. Um, in all martial arts, not just karate. And then when MMA happened, of course, that shows to a wider audience that this idea of people dropping into your amber eye, stepping forwards with an oizuki, and then someone countering it with a head block and a reverse punch, it was just if you were still adhering to that in your little closed dojo, your small little world, then MMA hitting the public consciousness in the way that it did um, showed that, no, no, that's not the way that fights work. It got everyone to question what functionality looked like. You know, the, the the myths of certain martial things working was laid a bit bare to the general public by MMA. But it, it, again, it wasn't the only thing that did it. I do think, of course, MMA has brought its own set of problems with it as well because it, it's like a lot of things. You know, it, a lot of if you talk for self defense in particular, people get their understanding of what real violence looks like from movies and TV. Th those who haven't sought to educate themselves on what violence is really like, or those who've haven't experienced it firsthand, then they make false assumptions. So because MMA is so popular now, people think, okay, yeah, that's as you know, like self-defense. That's what a self-defense situation is like. Well, there's no doubt there's lots of transferable skills, and there's a lot of things that MMA do in the way that they train are fantastic, but it doesn't cover the law, it doesn't cover de-escalation, it doesn't cover escape, it doesn't cover multiple opponents, it doesn't cover weapons, you know, there's all kinds of problems with it. And because it's almost become... A bit like the traditionalists who would never question what they did. MMA is becoming like that, where MMA guys just believe that the ultimate has now been reached, that everything that went before was false and nothing good can come after. And that's always problematic once you get that dogmatic thinking. So, but overall, you know, I think MMA has been a hugely positive thing for uh, for the, the, the martial arts. Um, it, it, and it definitely helped uh, expose people to questioning the, how they were practising.
Uh, next question we have is from Justin Scott, and he asks, uh, what style of karate do you follow? And the honest answer is that, I have no idea. Yeah, I know it's karate, and I know it's karate as we do it. If you'd asked me as to what style it was, I don't know. I'd also be re- reluctant to put a label on it, because the instant you do that, you define it. And I want my karate to be one that's constantly changing. In fact, we have that built into the system. I have it built into the system that for the like the higher grades, the down grades, they have to uh, contribute and they have to show me how they would do things and they have to challenge what I have shown them because I want their karate to be different from mine. I don't want it to be the pure, proper styles version. I don't want Ian Rue to ever exist. Because as, as soon as you do that, it's stagnant and it's gonna die. I, I, I don't, um, I don't want that. So I, I started in in Wadaru. My own instructor for for that was uh, Doug James, who's an eight dan. Uh, he learned from Toru Takamazawa, who had you know tweaked and changed things a little bit in line with his understanding. Uh, Doug did the same. Because uh, I get it, and then I'm, I get influences from from Peter and Jeff, and the train with Brian Seabright. I get information from him. I'm exposed to judo and other martial arts. Affect what I do, and you know. I I absorb these influences and and then there's my own innovation as well you know my own way of bringing all these sources together and and the stuff I put so I know it's karate <laughs> it's definitely karate but beyond that I have absolutely no idea um and I'm happy with that I'm happy to be styleless and and I think that's going to become more and more the popular I think I see more and more people doing that they know where their roots are they know what line they came from but within my lineage, again, I've got people from Wado, I've got people from Shukakai, I've got people from Shotokan, um, and it all gets fused together in karate as I do it. The, the kata, the kata, the style of the kata, I can be a bit more direct on those. The style of the kata I practice are Wado kata, as they were taught to me, because no one likes to admit this, but the styles within styles as well, within certain groups. But they're definitely the Wado kata. Um, but the style of karate, I, 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 I do not know. The next one is from uh, Gretchen Carlson. She asks, uh, uh, has Evie had her first karate lesson yet? <laughs> and me and Becky like that one. So Evie's my, my daughter, my uh, two-month-old daughter. So no, she hasn't had her first karate lesson yet. She has got a gi. We got her a little baby gi. From, uh, there's a company that makes those. Uh, babygeek.com, I think it is. Fantastic. She looks so cute in it. And as uh, a lot of you will know, Becky's a, a lifelong karateka herself. Uh, so we've had uh, from Goju. So we've had uh, discussions about will Evie be doing karate and my view was, you know, if she wants to and Becky's view was, uh, no she is. <laughs> she said I was made to do it. I didn't always want to do it but I was glad I was made to do it. So she's doing uh, she's doing karate. And then we started, we're having a, a, a drive in the car. We're on our way back from a seminar. Uh, and then we start talking about, you know, okay, if she's going to do karate, who's going to teach her and what's she going to learn and what first kata is she going to learn? What's the first kata we're going to teach her? So we have this discussion, and of course, I'm from my background, and Becky's from Goju, so she's thinking the Gekisai Kata, and I'm thinking the Pinans. So we have this discussion about whether we should learn the Gekisai Kata or the Pinan Kata first. And of course, this just amused me, because I thought most couples have discussions about what school children are going to go to, or what religion they're going to be raised, and we had an in-depth discussion on <laughs> on first Kata, so... Um, I, I don't need to tell you how that discussion ended, but suffice to say that uh, Evie will be learning the Gekisai kata first. Next one is from uh, Angelo Bacco. He said, my thoughts on karate getting into the Olympics. Uh, How do you think this will affect the growth of the practical and traditional side of karate versus WKF sport karate? So obviously this is a a hot topic, and I've, I've written about it on the website. We've had discussions on the forum there. 
So here's my thing. I, I am I am happy that the sports karate practitioners now have Olympic gold as something they can aim for. I understand that that's a, a very important thing for athletes. And I understand why people would want that. And they've worked hard to get it recognized as an Olympic sport. And I'm pleased for them. For me, I don't care. It doesn't make any difference to me personally. So, so one of the things that does irk me a little bit is I've seen some of the sports guys uh, argue that this is good for all of us. I don't think it is good for all of us. I think it's largely an irrelevance for most of us. We don't say that pragmatic karate is a wonderful thing for Olympic karate, so I don't think it's fair that they should say the same back. The sports guys, they can carry on doing what they're doing. They can pursue that Olympic gold, and I'm really happy for them. Uh, I'm just going to carry on doing what I'm doing. It will make no difference to me at all on a day-to-day basis. There are some who have expressed concern that it will alter the public's perception of what they think karate should be or will be. Uh, and it may put people off, you know. So if they're looking for something practical and they see two people bounced up and down, jumping back and forth, that it may put them off. Well, it may. You know, it may attract some people. There may be some teenagers and 20-somethings um, who look at that and think, yep, that's what I want to do. And then we get them into karate and they'll stay and then learn the other stuff too. It may work that way. My strong feeling is it will not make any difference to the public's perception of karate. And I'll tell you for why. And it's a... <laughs> Some people might like this, but nobody cares. Nobody in the outside world, other than outside of you know the karate world, cares that it's in the Olympics. Nobody, no member of the public, is going to stay awake to the middle of the night to watch the karate event unless they're already karateka. Uh, no one's going to be looking to watch that. That no one is. You know, I, I mean, I sometimes watch. You know, I, I, I like the judo. I sometimes watch a bit of the taekwondo because I'm a martial artist, as so I think I should. But for the vast majority of people, the Olympics is all about the the athletics. That's what they care about. That's what the vast majority of people will be focused on. So most people won't care. Most people won't watch it. For those that. D- do watch it. The only way they're going to come across that is if the athlete of the nation they belong to does particularly well. So if a, a great British karateka wins a gold medal or a silver medal or a bronze medal, that'll be a big deal. And I can see that obviously that will feature in the news cycle. They're not going to show every single fight that person's done because people won't be interested in that. They want to see the athletics. So they may show a highlight reel of the person winning the medal if if that person wins a medal. If they don't win a medal, they probably won't show any of it. So here's the thing. If karate becomes a permanent Olympic event, and and that's still debatable, but if it does, what it will mean in real terms, right, to the vast majority of people, it will mean that once every four years, there's likely to be 30 seconds of, of highlight on TV, which the vast majority of people will not care about and they will not see. So I think in terms of will this have a huge effect in altering how the public perceive karate? No, it won't. You know, within the martial arts world, you know, it'll have a slightly greater influence. But again, even minor. This is 30 seconds worth of TV once every four years. So, um, so um, yeah, please for the sports karate guy, don't think it'll have any influence on the rest of us. People will carry on doing what they do year in, year out. Uh, oh, there was one thing about funding as well. You know, there was another thing about, you know, you know, maybe, well, that's where the funding will go and that will have an influence. But, you know, again, I've never had a penny of government money. I've never had anything from the sports council. I don't teach sports karate, so I wouldn't expect to. But I do okay. And the reason I do okay is because I have a form of karate that people are interested in. So they seek it out. 
um, students come to the dojo and you know they pay their way there. And obviously, I have I do the seminars, and that generates revenue and income, which allows me to do all the free YouTube videos and the free podcasts and all that kind of stuff. So, I know I'm doing this without any help from the government. I've never needed it, and and I think that will be the case for the vast majority of karateka. The vast majority will not be getting a single penny. The small number of elite athletes will. So, so yeah, back on point. You know, I, I I'm 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 happy for them. I'm pleased for them. I don't think it'll make any difference to karate, and it certainly won't make any difference to me. We interrupt this podcast to bring you some breaking news. OFC veteran Maximilian Hammer has been found dead in the warm-up area of the OFC Heptagon. Early police reports state that the cause of death was a dart from a blowpipe which was tipped with poison extracted from the skin of a rare frog. Burutawagoto was unavailable for comment after disappearing following the dropping of a smoke bomb. Stay tuned for further developments. The next question we have is from Stan Roderick. He said, can you explore the importance of Kiai? So that's kind of like, obviously a fairly big topic, but I'll do my best. So the first thing is, this is how I would define it. Kiai is not a shout. It is, it is, it is, not, a, it is a, not a noise. And the way I explain it in my dojo, I said, if I set a firework off, something like that, right, there'll be an explosion. And the result of that explosion will be a, a bang. There will be a bang. But the bang is not the explosion. The bang is a result of the explosion. So Kiai to me is an internal feeling. It's a uh, moment of full emotional and mental commitment. It's a, a moment of extreme intensity, giving all you've got in a way that ensures that your goal is attained. And in that given instance, it's a powerful feeling. And a psychological effect of that powerful feeling is to make a noise, is to shout. So the shout is the result of the internal feeling. Uh, the, the shout is not the Kiai. Okay, the Kiai is the feeling within, and the shout is what results from that, that feeling. So that's, that's one thing I'd had. You know, that's, that's what's happening inside me. Obviously, in terms of, uh, the, the enemy, there's an effect going on with him. So, so I, if I'm shouting prior to the attack, it can obviously startle him, as well as psyching me, as well as committing me to the moment, it could startle the enemy. If I, Kiai, as I'm employing the technique, it can increase the commitment, it can confuse the enemy, the, sh- the shouting as well as the motion can overwhelm his senses. And there's also a thing of kiai after you've done a technique as well. It's like a release, a feeling of release, a f- of release of that, th- those energies, as well as communicating to everyone else and that person, you know, you don't want to continue this. There's you know, a strong psychological message sent to people there as well. So um, there's lots going on psychologically, both within you and with the enemy as well. So you've got those three key eyes, you know, be, you know before and, and during and after. Um, psyching yourself up, distracting the enemy, and that, that release, that release of that, uh, that feeling. In terms of physically, you know, I mean, again, that's obviously, that's a, a shout that should come from your stomach, not from your throat. It should come from, from low within you. Tenses the, the, the solar plexus up that little bit and makes you a little bit more invulnerable to, to blows and things. But it, that takes us back to breathing as well. Uh, I think with, with breathing, we sometimes get overly complicated with that. You know, the best thing is just breathe. Make sure you get enough oxygen in. And the shouting can be a part of that breathing cycle. So again, you could really get in depth with that, and it might be fun to do a, a full podcast uh, on it. But that would be the key thing for me, is that the Kiai is not the shout. The Kiai is that feeling. And if you've never felt it, then it's like a lot of feelings. You can't describe it. It's like trying to describe 
sad or elated to someone who's never had those feelings. But for those who've trained a while, you'll know what I mean. There's that, that, that feeling of, in that moment, you just feel invincible. You cannot be beaten. You, you are a force of nature uh, that nothing can withstand. You know? And in that moment, you know, when that, that, that split second where that feeling exists, the shout will come out as a, as a, result, of, uh, a result of that. Okay, next one. There's another one from uh, Gretchen Carlson. She says, since you've uh, taught karate all over the world, uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts on how different cultures uh, blend with their arts. You know, we all borrow aspects of culture. Uh, when we practice uh, traditional mar- martial arts, we are still products of the culture we grew up with. So how do I see that manifesting itself? And I definitely have, you know, I de- definitely have seen that on, on my travels. So let, let's give some, like, simple exa- examples. I know uh, I first met Gretchen in uh, Chicago. So I know Gretchen's from the uh, the U.S. So I think it would be fair to say uh, that the U.S. has a, a strong culture of... Uh, it values freedom and individuality and uh, doesn't like big organizations. And I, I see that in the way that karate is practiced. There's no overarching body that covers the whole of, of, of American karate. Uh, and I think one of American karate's greatest strengths is it avoids that uniformity and that attempt to control. So, you know, you can walk into a, a, a dojo in the US and you'll get lots of variation in technique, you'll get lots of variation in uniforms, got lots of variation in training programs, and that's great because it allows the, uh, or the positive is, it allows the good ones to thrive. There's nobody holding them back. You're not working to the lowest common denominator. The downside is maybe that the uh, poor quality martial arts can thrive too because there's no one there to stop it. So, but I definitely noticed that. You know, I, I once had a, um, I was at a seminar in, uh, I think it was Kansas. And, uh, uh, I won't name him in case he doesn't want this mentioned publicly, but he, he came up to me and he just said, uh, and we're looking across, well, I'm, I'm looking at the room and there's red geese and blue geese and black geese and white geese and all kind of, do, and he, he leans in and he says, all these different colored geese. He goes, that's just an American thing, isn't it? And I went, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's just an American thing. So if you you don't see that elsewhere, you know, in the UK you'll see black and white and occasional colours, but you don't see the, um, the the variation that you see in the US. That's something I notice in the US, which is a. And then if you go to somewhere like uh, like say Germany, Germany has one body that oversees the whole of karate. I can't imagine that working too well in the US. The positive side of that for for Germany is the standard in Germany is very high. Consistently there is a there's a good base standard. But again, it can get in the way of limiting that freedom and individuality. So if someone wants to do something a little bit differently, they're, they're, they're limited as to what their grading options would be uh, in a way that you might not be uh, uh, be elsewhere, you see. So, yeah, I, I think that's a really good observation, you know, because we think of this as, you know, karate, you know, it starts in Okinawa, it moves to Japan, and it changes when it goes to Japan. As we talked about earlier, those Japanese cultural influences affect it. And of course, you know, originally you go back further, you know, these Chinese things that move to Okinawa and they get Okinawan eyes and they go to Japan and they get influenced by that culture. And certainly when they've landed in the West, they've got influenced that way too. So another example, you know, in the UK, people generally are very uncomfortable with using the formal title. So uh, sensei is about as far as it will go. And even that feels uncomfortable. People don't like giving or using honorific titles. Uh, and, and, and they don't like being called by them. I would feel very uncomfortable with someone calling me sensei. And I know some people would feel uncomfortable calling me that too. 
I've no idea why that should be the case. It's certainly things like, you know, if you use the term master or grandmaster in the UK, people instantly look down on you. You know, if you refer to yourself as, oh, I'm Master Abernethy, that would be, yeah, you're an arrogant so-and-so. You know, it, it, it's not looked upon uh, kindly. But I know in the US, people use those terms all the time, and there's not that connotation. Uh, and the reason for this, I think, is, again, it's different culture. And my guess would be, not that I'm a sociologist, but my guess would be, in the UK, we, uh, for a long period of time, had a very strong class structure where you didn't have this American dream idea where, you know, the, anyone can become president, you know, anyone can work the way up and that wasn't the way it was in the UK for a long period of time. You were born into a social, certain social structure and that was very likely where you would end up and where your children would end up. And of course, that's gone of going, you know, there's still the echoes of it, but, but again, it's not quite the same way that it was. So I think there's still that uncomfortableness with, well, who are you to put yourself above me? You know, are you saying you're superior to me? Why, why must I call you this term? You could get that from the students. From, from, and from the instructor's point of view, it was, you know, I don't want to be above you. I don't want to be arrogant towards you. I, I want to be friendly towards you and open to you. So I don't want to put this barrier between us by insisting that you call me master, whatever, you see. So that's another difference I notice. See, and, and I get this. See, sometimes as well, I know people in the UK can see people in the US use terms like master this or master that, and they have the same reaction going, oh, that's a bit arrogant. But it's not. In, in, in US martial parlance, it's quite normal to do that. You know, it's just the, the, in the same way you would call, call a school teacher sir. It's, it's the same, um, same thing, I think. So, um, yeah, definitely do see a big difference, you know, wh wherever you go. You know, so there's, there's a few, um, few examples. But I, I think everywhere is, you know, a little bit different. But the one thing I will say is there's a lot more in, uh, that connects than, than divides. You know, I, I have been, you know, through most European countries, I've taught in Australia, I've taught in the US, I've taught in Canada, and, and there are little cultural differences from place to place, but there's a lot more commonality so, um, than, than there is differences. There's a lot more that unites us than that, div that divides us, really. But there's some, some thoughts. So, like, coloured uniforms, don't see that much over here. The way we tend to organise ourselves. Oh, one other one, just uh, if you take Germany, for example, you don't find many professional... Uh, martial arts instructors, full-time martial arts instructors, because they don't organize the martial arts that way. Um, most martial arts are taught out of uh, government-owned buildings, and because of that, then it, it's they don't pay for the halls, they don't pay for the rooms, um, but they, they, they don't get paid by the students either. Uh, and I know that's the same in Norway as well. Again, you, you see very few uh, full-time martial arts instructors. In the US, of course, um, that's very, very common, because again, it's it's a lot more... I guess the free market culture there, you know, you do see a lot of professional martial arts instructors. And in the UK, it's probably somewhere between the two. You see, you know, a lot that do it for the uh, the love of it, and you see others that do it for the love of it and earn a living off it as well. So, so that's another one that you see that's that's um, that's a bit different. So yeah, it's fun. That's a great thing about traveling. It's nice to see the the different ways in which the culture affects things. So the next question we've got is from Harold Wisner. And he said, what does and does not constitute karate? So he said, you know, if we believe that the study of karate to be a dynamic, adaptive, holistic, uh, well-rounded approach to practical self-defense that will include infighting, locks, takedowns, grappling, etc., etc., at what point would something be outside of karate? You know, and, that, and, and it's a really interesting question. You know, we did a podcast a, a little while ago called... Uh, I think the title was something along the lines of what makes a karate technique a karate technique. And it's kind of in line with this, I think. We can bring things in, and things have been brought in. The, 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 the example, the classic example, is roundhouse kick. 
if you ask somebody, name a traditional karate kick, most people, I would say at least half, would instantly jump to roundhouse kick. Name a karate kick, roundhouse kick. You get some that would say front and side and back and stuff, but most would go roundhouse. It's the quintessential karate kick. Yet if you look in the early books, you know, like Itaman's books and Funakoshi's books, uh, the early ones, no roundhouse kick there. Lots of other leg techniques listed, no roundhouse kick. Front kick's in there, side kick's in there, returning wave kick's in there, stamping, groin kicking, that's all in, no roundhouse kick. You look at uh, Funakoshi's Karate Do Kyohan, the 1930s version, no roundhouse kick, it's not there. And then by the 1958 revised version, then we have the roundhouse kick. So, you know, if you, if you say to someone, is roundhouse part of karate? Everyone would go, the roundhouse kick. Everyone would go, yeah, of course it is. You know, it is, it's a quintessential fundamental kick. Yeah, of course it's part of karate. But it wasn't. <laughs> you know, it has been for about 60 years. So that begs the question, you know, what can we bring in and it still be karate? Because you can, the roundhouse kick has proved that can be done. Uh, and to me, it's, it's, Again, to quote Gavin Mulholland, in a forum discussion he once said that our arts are not what we do, they're how we train what we do. So I, I think if you train something in a karate way, then it's a karate technique. You know, so if you put on your, your gi and you're training something and you're relating it back to kata, and then it, it, over time it will become a karate technique. And I've done that. You know, so I, I've, I've taken techniques that I learned from, say, like judo. And in my own dojo, I go, okay, we have this throwing karate. This is where it's found in the kata. In judo, they have a variation on it that goes like this. We will now practice this variation. It comes from judo, but it's essentially a variant on the throwing technique and principles we have within the kata. So it's simultaneously became a judo technique and a karate technique. And just like the roundhouse, you know, you get a few generations of that. I can see that technique being subsumed. So we no longer make reference to it being a judo technique. It's now a karate technique. You know, she's some fundamentally practiced as, as part of what we do. Now, we have to be careful about that, too. I mean, I always liked Ed Parker's quote. When Ed Parker was asked, what is pure karate? Um, and Ed Parker replied that pure karate is when pure fist meets pure face. <laughs> Which I think that, that's exactly it. So uh, we shouldn't be saying, oh, I won't practice that highly effective method because it's not part of karate. Make it part of karate. Bring it in. Let's make karate the best possible martial art we can be. If there's things we can bring into what we do to make our karate better, we should do that. And traditionally, that's what they always did. You know, they, they would never turn away an effective method or an effective way of training. We shouldn't, shouldn't become dogmatic about this. If something's good, let's make it part of karate. So that the karate that's passed on to us, we do our bit to improve it and we pass it on to the, the subsequent generations. If we don't do that, then karate will die out. So we betray those who formulated karate because we said, we took your art and we killed it. We made it so that nobody wanted to practice it. We made it inefficient. You devoted your life to an art that we killed. So you're not honouring the masses of the past if you don't accept change and innovation. You're betraying them. You're confining their work to the dustbin of history. So if you build on it and you say, you know, thanks for all that great information, and without that great information, I wouldn't be in a position to be able to add these other things on or these new training methods or train this in a subtly different way. So we do those things, and then we pass the karate on to the future generations who will thank us for giving them something that's, you know, as efficient as it can be, and they'll go on and make their own changes too. So karate should be, I think, a, an ever-evolving ever thing.
Uh, the next question we've got is from uh, Marlin Wilson, who came from Twitter. He asked me, uh, what do I think are Motobu's most significant and or unique contributions to karate? So it's an interesting one, I think, because I think Motobu's became more and more popular as uh, an historical figure, as uh, karate has returned to its more practical roots. And that's probably because Motobu, unlike others of his time, steadfastly stuck to those practical roots. You know, Motobu said that nothing is more harmful to mankind than a martial art that can't be used in self-defense. You know, one of lots of things, you know, smallpox, that's more harmful to mankind than a martial art that can't be used in self-defense. It's loads of things, but, but I get his point. You know what I mean? What he's saying is that, you know, that martial arts need to work. So he never left that. So now that Karate is returning to its practical roots, he's a guy of interest. You know, so I think his, his influence is becoming greater and, and, and greater. I think one of his, his his influences at the time, of course, was he helped spread karate. Uh, not a lot of people know this, but Motobu was apparently very bad with money. Uh, and he's behind on his rent again. And um, his landlord had said to him, look, you know, I need the money. Motobu would, well, I haven't got it. You know, he, apparently he ran a, like a taxi business, like a horse-drawn taxi business thing, which didn't do very well. And apparently his wife would literally count the change out into his hands like you would with a little kid because he couldn't be trusted with money. You know, he wasn't good with money. So anyway, so he tells his landlord, yeah, no, I've, I haven't got it. So the landlord said, well, I need it, but there's a judo versus boxers event. Maybe you could enter that and win me some money, win some prize money and pay your rent. So the story is that Motobu enters this event and he goes down there and they ask him, you know, what do you want to enter as a you know, judo player or a boxer? He said, well, I do karate. Well, of course, hardly anyone's heard of it then. So he said, uh, I'll put me down as a judo player. So he, he enters as a judo player. And the story is that the first round, you know, this 50-year-old Okinawan with a bit of a belly on him comes out and all his punches are thrown at him and Motobu doesn't do much. Um, so the crowd start laughing. Start the second round, Motobu comes out and bang, hits the boxer once, the boxer's flat out. And there's a stunned silence, you know, there's, oh, what the hell was that? What have we all just witnessed? Uh, Motobu later said that in the first round he was just seeing what boxers do. You know, he wanted to see uh, how the never fought a boxer before so let's see what they do he worked it out and then knocked him out in the second round so this gets widely reported in a magazine called king magazine um and of course they don't have any pictures of karate so what they do is uh they find the only picture of karate they've got which is of funakoshi doing the opening move of pinan yodan <laughs> or hian yodan so uh um funakoshi stole motobu's thunder a little bit on that one i got the photograph which they, those two men were rivals and that I'm no doubt contributed towards it. So one of his big contributions were people want to know what's this karate thing then? You know, what, what is it? Tell us about it. So you undoubtedly had an influence in, in, in making it uh, popular in Japan at that time as well. So, um, but I, what, what's his most significant contribution? I think it's because he wrote quite a bit and I think he's a guy, a practical martial arts guy we can look back to. Um, cause his writing is pretty much along those lines. He's not, he's not writing as a, uh, karate is a form of exercise. He's writing about it as being a pragmatic system. So we can, can look back to that and, and that again connects us to the past and enables us to move forward. So next question we've got is from uh, Adrian, who's, uh, didn't give his surname, but it's Adrian from Australia. So you know who you are. So he asks, uh, have you had any criticisms from Japanese or Okinawan senseis or any organizations about your approach? And yeah, loads. <laughs> loads and loads. Uh, both from uh, Japanese groups and associations uh, and from Western ones too. You know, I've had uh, a very well-known Japanese instructor once informed his students that he didn't want any of them training with that man, which was in reference to me. 
Um, but that's fine, you know. I mean, that, that, that's the I, I have I have no problem with that. I mean, obviously, I I put myself out there with my you know public views and public opinions, so I should expect some critique. Some people aren't going to like what I say, and that's fine. That's what we need. We need good, healthy debates back and forth, you know. Um, so I, it's all just all part of it. It doesn't uh, in any way bother me, and I think it would bother me if it wasn't happening. Uh, I think the only people who don't get critiqued in any way or cared about in any way is those who have no influence. And even when it gets really negative, you know, you do get some people who, you know, they'll start attacking your character and all this kind of stuff because they don't like what you do or they consider you a threat. But that's good too because it, it shows you're significant. If, 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 um, <laughs> if, if, if no, no one ever critiques you, you're living your life wrong. You're, you're either doing nothing of note or you're of no real influence. So, um, yeah, I've had lots of critique. None of it's a problem. Because what I try and do as well is though I, I, I never, I always start all the seminars by saying, you know, I'm not saying mine's the only way or the best way. I'm just saying it's a way. And I always quote General MacArthur, you know, when he said, if everyone thinks the same, then someone isn't thinking. I want dissent. I want disagreement. And when I do the seminars and, well, even the podcasts and the videos and everything else, I'm not saying do as I do. I'm saying I hope you find some of what I do of, of interest to you. So I'm open to the idea of uh, different discussions and uh, different viewpoints being expressed. I think it's healthy. It's always very unhealthy when you get people all adhering to the uh, the same the same views. So I, I think it's it's good that we've uh, we've got it, and um, I'm, I'm I'm glad that I I get it too. Some of it's funny as well, you know. I because occasionally people will send me things where they'll say, you know, have you said what heard what such and such has said about you on this forum or this newsletter? But you know, and, it, and just to be honest, I'm never that interested. You've got better better things to to do. But some of it's funny, like one guy that. Oh yeah, Ian's really a boxer who studied judo, and he came to karate late in life. Well, you know, it's untrue. I started karate when I was eleven years old, and other other stuff like that, where it's just completely wrong, it can be sometimes quite entertaining. So yeah, lots of it, and long may it continue. The more criticism, the better. It shows I'm doing something right. Uh, next question is uh, Alan Pope. He said, "Hello, Alan." He said, uh, "If you were able to go back in time and meet with Funakoshi Oritosu, what would you most likely want to know and why?" So I remember in a previous Q and A one, people asked me which master would I like to speak to, and it was Itosu. Uh, with Itosu, the reason I'd like to speak to him is say, "Okay, you started off a series of changes. You modernised karate. You started, it, and this is how it ended up." So. Your little Okinawan art is now a worldwide phenomenon. It's now a household name. So he must be overjoyed at that. But I wonder how we'd feel about certain other elements, you know, like the impracticalities of it, some of the the negative politics that surrounds it, some of the unethical money-making that goes on with it. Uh, I'd like to know, you started this off. What were the unintended consequences? Uh, What would you do different to maybe avoid some of the things that grew from the seed that you planted? I'd want to know that. And, and similarly with Funakoshi, I, I I don't think Funakoshi and I would get on. <laughs> I, I I think um, the because really, for example, you know Funakoshi, the name of my school, you know, so we we call ourselves, you know, we have Jisun Karate, you know, so Karate for actual combat. And Funakoshi in his book said he didn't like people using the term Jisun, you know, this this idea of focusing on actual conflict. He felt the Karate was more than that, and it was a noble thing. Um, he, he makes links to Buddhism in some of his writing, which are completely factually false. You know, this myth that we all come from Buddhimara and the Shaolin Temple. It's a myth. He told so, Funakoshi's old teacher, that's the very first line of his ten precepts. Karate did not come from Buddhism or Confucianism. There's no historical link there. 
and yet Funakoshi said there was, and I'm, 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 I openly criticise these historical falsehoods, and I don't know how he'd feel about me doing that. Uh, I also think we come from different eras. So Funakoshi came from an era where, and, and but I've got, we should be clear, I've got massive respect for Funakoshi because if he hadn't made the changes that he made, uh, karate would never have taken off in the way that it did. I, I would never have heard of it. He was the guy who was able to read the zeitgeist. He was able to read the mood of the time and then teach a form of karate that was able to spread. You know, and he, he opened the door for others. So I, I, Funakoshi did wonderful, wonderful things. And I'm grateful and, and, and really admire him. But our times are different. So the, the kind of karate that Funakoshi wished to push forth has, has largely had its day. There's elements of it that will take forwards, and we all acknowledge that karate can be good for body and mind, and it, it can be good for developing character, and that's going to go forwards. But we need the pragmatism back. The karate of the future needs to have pragmatism. People want that. So, so I'm keen to introduce that uh, in a way that Funakoshi was keen to underplay for the karate that he wanted to push forth. So I don't know if we'd see eye to eye on lots of things, being of... You know, different cultures and different times, but I, you know, I'd love to meet the guy, and I'd love to thank him for everything that he'd done, and I'd like to know what he thought about what we were doing, what I was doing, and what others were doing, and whether he would admire us making karate suitable for the modern age and the way going forward, or whether he'd think whether he'd want to fight the tide a little bit and have his version of karate. Or the version, you know, the version that he started off in the universities, because obviously Funakoshi practiced. Different. If you look at his early works, you know, it is more self-defense focused. But you know, I, I'd want to know: would he want us to go with the times, or would he want us to fight it a little bit? So um, it'd be interesting to ponder. Unfortunately, uh, we will never know because I will never meet to get there to meet those guys in this life. You know. We interrupt this podcast to bring you some breaking news. There was more bad news for the OFC at this evening's press conference following the death of fighter Maximilian Hammer and the disappearance of his opponent, Buro Tawagoto. OFC spokesperson Dan Black was hit by an arrow with a note attached. The note read, Ninjas are as ninjas do, now pay me my money. No one from the OFC was available for comment. So the next one's from uh, Ian H from, from the forum. He said, uh, in what ways has your approach to practical karate evolved, both in your own training and teaching of others? What concepts, methods or approaches have you discarded or significantly changed? What improvements have you made along the way? What have you learned that takes your knowledge and methods in a better direction compared to uh, years ago? So uh, for, for me, I mean, my karate is constantly changing, or at least I hope it is. Well, it's growing. So you think of it like a, like a, a tree. You know, I've got an apple tree in my garden, right? That apple tree is constantly growing. The instant it stops growing, it's dead. I don't want my karate to die. I want it to grow. But I don't chop down the tree and plant a new one all the time. It, it's, it's still got the same trunk. You know, it's still got the same roots. So uh, my karate has been one, um, <laughs> it's a cheesy phrase, but I am going to run with it. It's one that's evolved. It's evolution, not revolution. I, I, and there's not many times where I've kind of suddenly you know, done an about face and threw something out, you know. So even things like, you know, I don't do any one-step sparring anymore, you know, that's completely dropped from my practice and my teaching for decades. And and, and my students are better because of getting rid of it because it, it gives us more time for more practical things. But even that, I didn't suddenly overnight go, let's get rid of it. It was a slow process of realising this isn't working to the point where, I, you know, I 
effectively on we teach it less and less in the dojo so it eventually got phased out to the point where we just you know we, we ain't doing that anymore but it wasn't like an overnight switch so that's one thing that, that that's gone it's really difficult to draw out specific things because again it's like that tree if i if you take a snapshot of the tree it doesn't look like it's growing but it is and, and it's the same for my karate really it's constantly shifting so i think of um, things that are obvious ones so uh, getting into the study of bunkai was a big thing, you know, once I realised, you know, these forms have got applications, and we're always taught, in the dojo I belong to, we're always taught some applications, but it wasn't a big part of what we practised. But starting to run with that and research that obviously made a massive difference to the way my karate ended up uh, getting shaped. Beginning to train with Jeff Thompson and uh, Jeff's real-life experience at a very high level and some of the concepts and training methods he introduced, you know, the animal day training, the fence concepts, or the, the nuanced uh, uh, preemption that had a big influence. Uh, Peter Considine, a massive influence on transitions and power generation. You know, as soon as you've been hit by Peter, you know, people think they hit hard. That's a thing. You know, so you talk about the, uh, the double hip, incredibly powerful striking method. And, and I believed I punched hard until I experienced a whole different level of hard the first time Peter whacked me through a pad. I was, okay, that's different. You know, that's, a, that's another level of hard. So I'm sure listen to this the way people go, yeah, I hit hard. And I'm sure you think you do. Get Peter to whack a pad for you and then you'll realize that there's a whole different level of hard you've yet to experience. So that was a revelation. So I was, okay, that I need. So that was why you know, I started uh, training with Peter on a kind of weekly basis to take those skills, to get good at those skills, and eventually impart them to, to my students. So lots and lot, lots of things. Things I've discarded, I say, that were one-step practice went. I don't do any form of... We do fighting practice, sparring, but not competitive-style sparring anymore. So even when we fight, we allow grabbing, hook punches, uppercuts, shin kicks, knees, elbows, you know, um, throws, groundwork. So even when we're fighting away from the self-defense stuff, it's a more all-in style of fighting. I don't do any form of, of competitive sparring anymore. If I'm honest, I'm not even sure what the rules are these days. So um, so that's something else. I, I did. I competed right up to uh, fourth then. I was regular in competitions. Everyone that there was, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go along to. Not that I particularly enjoyed it, not that I particularly trained for it, but that's what you did. You went, you went to competitions and competed in uh, Kumite and Kata, but that got dropped as well. And again, my students have, most of them have never competed because we just don't do it anymore. And again, I think they've, they've benefited uh, from that. So yeah, it's interesting. I do have some video as well. One day I'll put it online. There's, uh, uh, there's me teaching when I'm about uh, 19 years old. Um, I've got it on a VHS cassette. <laughs> For those old enough to know what one of those is. And um, one is I've got hair. That's the first thing that's really weird. You know, I've got, I've got hair in it. But um, it, it, you can see the beginnings of what I'm starting to do. I'm teaching some uh, ways to get up from the floor if someone's trying to kick you when they're standing. And I made a couple of references to cut the concepts and stuff. So you can see the embryonic stages of where I end up being now. So I've got that little snapshot from that point in time, um, which I'll have to kind of transpose to something digitally at some point and, and, and share with people because it is quite interesting to see. Uh, and also, see, this is another thing, when I look at, like, um, so there's one, there's a marker. The other is the books. So if you think of, like, the Bunkai Jitsu book, which is now a print, I wrote that 14 years ago. And everything in that book I still stand by, and everything in that book I, I, I believe to be correct and right. But I would express some of that a little bit differently now. Uh, I think there's better ways to communicate it. So when I look back on these snapshots, I can see that the Makarat is changing, both in the way that I communicate it and the way that I practice it. 
but I don't notice it at the time. Again, it's like looking at the tree. I know it's growing right in front of my eyes, but I can't see that. And, I, and I'm sure my karate is evolving and changing, but it's only when I look back I can I can see it. Okay, so I think that's the last of the general karate questions that we, we have. Okay, so we'll start with the training and technique questions. The first one's from Gareth Piper. He said, uh, it could probably be a podcast unto itself, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on modern versus traditional equipment training, i.e. the pros and cons of, say, a heavy bag versus a uh, makiwara, that kind of thing. So, you know, so it definitely could be a podcast unto itself, and I'll, I'll bear that in mind. I'll, <laughs> I may well do a podcast on that one. Uh, but the fundamental thing to me is it comes back to what gets the best results. Um, it doesn't to me. It doesn't matter whether it's traditional or not. It's it's what's the most effective way of training. So back in the past, if all you had was a makiwara and bales of straw to hit, well, that's all you had. So that's what you made use of. I think a lot of the modern training equipment is far more useful. So a, a makiwara does have its place, you know, but it, it, it's limited in terms of it's always the same height. It doesn't move. It doesn't come towards you. It doesn't move away from you. You can't. You can only hit it from one angle. You know, you can't hit it in a rising or a dropping way because of you know the, the nature of it. You can't hit it with combinations. You can't combine grappling techniques with the the impact. It's very very limited. Now you compare that to say focus mitts with a skilled holder. You can have the guy advancing to you, moving away from you, angling. You can angle round, hit it from different positions. You can grip the, your partner while you're hitting the pads. You can combine it with all the grappling techniques. You can throw combinations on it. If you had to, if you were forced to make a binary choice between the Makiwara and the Focus Mitts, the Focus Mitts are obviously an infinitely superior piece of training equipment, and they should be used more because they develop realistic functional hitting drills that have movement in the same way real fights have movement. Now, some may argue, of course, that well, the, the advantage of the Makiwara is it's solid. So when, when you hit it, 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 it's solid. So it condition your hands to a degree, which is true. Uh, the trouble with it being solid again, though, it doesn't move like a person moves. People aren't solid. They move when you whack them, you know, and they move when they're trying to uh, whack you. So uh, I do have a Makiwara. I use it a minimal amount. I, I much prefer the, the modern training equipment because it's just far more practical in my view. Uh, punch bag. Uh, that, again, that's a great bit because you can use a punch bag when there's no one around. Again, unlike the, the Makiwara, you can hit it from lots of different angles. You can't do rising or dropping strikes because it's not cylindrical. So it's limited in that way. And it doesn't quite move in the way a person moves because it's tethered at the top. So it tends, the bottom of it tends to swing a lot more. Whereas it's, for human beings, it's the opposite. The head tends to move a lot more than the feet do. Either through the enemy's own actions or the, when you punch them, it's the head that moves more than the feet do. Uh, and then, of course, we've got the like the weight training stuff. So one of the the nice things about the traditional weight training stuff is it's very functional. You know, it's coordinated movements uh, in ways that largely replicate the kind of movements that you would use when when fighting. So I, I can see how there would be a, a strong use for the for the t traditional you know the weighted jars and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, but again, you know, I've, I've always been a fan of like uh, modern weightlifting. I'm a you know, qualified weightlifting coach. That's always helped me. 
uh, I, I find that really useful. And I love modern equipment like the TRX, the suspension trainers, love those things. Again, great for coordinated uh, strength training, uh, very easy to use. For someone who travels a lot like I do, they're great to throw into the bag and you've got a you know, gym where, wherever you go. So I, th- I, think, I think for me, uh, like it's, it's, it's not an either or. You choose which ones you are finding to be most effective. Um, but uh, one thing that I wouldn't do is just stick with traditional equipment just because it's, in air quotes, traditional. Um, the reason they used that stuff was it was the best stuff they had at the time. And I'm certain that if I could travel back in time and landed in Itosu's dojo and said, look, I've got this big bag of focus mitts, what do you think? Then they would be say, okay, let's use those. Let's use those a bit more and the Makiwara a bit less. So, yeah, get the mix. That's always the key, I think. So the next question we've got is from Scott Britt, and he said, uh, how do we make the most efficient use of our training time? How much training time should be devoted to uh, Keon versus Kata versus Kata-based sparring versus pad work versus, you know, de-escalation skills, and uh, etc.? He makes the example, he says, I know that they'll often overlap, but if you're spending 80% of your time on Keon, you might want to alter things. And, and I think that's true. You know, there the needs to be a good, healthy mix of all those things, and they do if you do it right, they do overlap to a significant degree. So if your cutter teaches you what your keyon's going to be, teaches you what your bunkai and your pair work's going to be, you're using those techniques in sparring, then that informs your sparring techniques, and you're developing impact on the pads, and that's your pad drills. So ev- everything kind of gets related. It, it's truly cutter-centric when you, um, you do it right, in my view. So they often overlap and support one another. But... There's definitely a, a need to look at what your training objectives are. So, like, for example, um, Mabuni, uh, Mabuni said that he felt you should spend 50% of your time on kata, 25% of your time hitting things, and 25% of your time sparring. You know, so if you include cutters in, which he seems to be, kata is not just a solo cutter, but the applications of those kata and work and set drills with your partner, then that would seem to be an overall healthy balance for me. For me, I, I'd say overall, you want a third of each. You know, you, you want a third of your time doing live drills with a partner, you know, doing, doing those kind of things. Third of your time fighting. You want a third of your time on compliant and solo training, you know, working your cutter and your bunkai and stuff. And you want a third of your time hitting things. You know, because um, obviously it's all moot without impact. If, if, if when fist its face, nothing happens, it's all pointless. You need the impact. But within 90-minute class, you're not going to spend 30 minutes on each topic. Um, we don't do it that way. Some classes will do lots of key on, next class will do none. But the overall mix will be somewhere around there where, where we've got it. And, of course, you observe what's going on. So if I was to look at it and think, mm, you know, the student's cutter wasn't looking as sharp as I would like, we'll spend a bit more time on the solo cutter. And if that starts, okay, they, yeah, the movements are looking nice and that's flowing through to the bunkai, but mm, maybe we need a bit more on groundwork with them. That was looking a bit rough last week, so we'll do a bit more on that. And that tends to be how we work in my own dojo. We're just constantly observing what they're doing and how well they're doing things, and then we shift and balance the training in accordance with the, the students' needs. Uh, and for myself, you know, I, I like that mix as well, so I do a bit of fitness work in, in what I do. Um, I, I like to, you know, I work my solo cutter, I do lots of pair drills, pad drills, spawn drills. It's nice to do the mix, and I'm observing myself, you know, what felt good, what felt bad, what do I need improving on, and I'll adjust the training accordingly. I think it's that thing of always going back to well, how well are we performing and how do we need to change the mix rather than arbitrarily going I'll spend 15 minutes on this 20 minutes on this 30 minutes on this it's just do a bit of everything and where you're weak that's where you should be devoting the, uh, the lion's share of your training time
Now, the next question we've got is from John Capra. It's a great question, this. It said, uh, he says, I've seen people who state they do karate for self-defense, and yet when they do pad works or bag work, they wear bag gloves. Surely it should be bare hands. Is that what you're going to be using to protect yourself? That's a really good question, because uh, it's one of these things that I, I think is more nuanced, again, than a lot of people consider. So undoubtedly, yeah, and it's true, you know, when, when you're in self-defense, you're going to be hitting with a bare fist. So if you're relying on the bag gloves and you're relying on strapping in order to get your fist in the right position, you're going to have a problem with that. So um, I would suggest that there does need to be some pad work where it's barefisted. Now, I'll I'll tell you what one one of my uh, teachers uh, once said to me. He said that he does hear people say, they'll go, oh, I never wear bag gloves, ever. And he said, he says, "When, when they say that, I hear one of two things. He says, they either can't hit very hard or they're not training very often. He says, because if you can hit hard and you are training often, then the bones of the hand just can't take being smashed into things with force day after day after day after day. At some point, you've got to go, in order to continue working my technique and my fitness and everything else, I'm going to have to protect my hands for now. So I think that, and I agree with that completely. I, I, I agree with that completely. Is 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 if um, people are saying, "Well, oh, I never ever put gloves on my hands," they're either not hitting things regularly enough, so the hands have time to recover, or they're not hitting things hard. They may think they're hitting things hard, but you know, there is that other level of hard that a lot of people are yet to discover. So for for me, it's a mix. Now, so personally, I say if I if I'm doing ten rounds on the bag, right? You know, if I would do the first eight with my gloves on, and I would do the last two with my gloves off. So I can check that, you know, the fist formation and everything's still okay. But I'm protecting my hands so the next day, if I want to train again, I've not got bruised knuckles and the skin's not ripped off and, and everything else. You know, I, I'm able to train day after day after day after day in a way that's not damaging my hands. I'm still able to tie my shoelaces, write my own name, you know, tap keys on a keyboard. So um, if you're always wearing gloves, that's a problem because you'll start to rely upon them. Um, if you're never wearing them, you undoubtedly that means you're not training as regular as you should be. Uh, you're not hitting hard as you should be, or you're going to end up with problems. Your hands are going to end up being damaged as a result. And we need that to look after ourselves. We want to be training for the whole of our lives. We don't want to have to stop because we develop knuckles that every time we lightly tap something, we screamed in agony. So yeah, so so that that would be the thing. Uh, n- no problem with having the bad gloves on. So long as it's part of the overall mix. And if you are hitting things on a regular basis, you know, if you're doing that like four or five times a week or three, four times a week even, you need to make sure that you are taking some steps to protect your hand. But don't do that all the time. You should do some bare-fisted stuff to make sure, again, that you're using your alignment properly and that you've got good fist formation. The other thing as well is, of course, is karateka. We don't just hit with our fists. We hit with the inside edge of the hand, the outside edge of the hand. We hit with palm heels. So we should be practicing that stuff too. And obviously for that, it helps if the bag uh, gloves come off because um, some, depending on the, the brand of glove, but some of them can interfere with that, uh, that too. And even like, you know, the MMA gloves, they still allow all of that, but they still give wrist support. So, so again, you know, it's good to take them off completely and practice the array of strikes uh, on the pads or the impact equipment. So I uh, hope that's something to consider. Because you know, again, I see people that tend to fall into one of the two camps. Always wear gloves, never wear gloves. And to me, there's, it's, it's the mix. It's, it's, it's both of them that we want. Okay, the next question we've got is from Carlos Avallado. He said, what are your thoughts on cross-training in other arts while keeping up with your karate training? i.e. boxing, wrestling, judo, etc. Um, so that's how I've always done it. That, that's what that's what I've always done. My, my I consider myself a karateka first and foremost. That's what I do. 
and I've never stopped karate in order to train in something else. I've always trained whatever I've been working on side by side. So, for example, you know, there was a few years where I was going to train in judo twice a week. But I was training karate right alongside that as well. So I was um, doing the two uh, together. I, I think that's the best way to do it. I don't think you should say, okay, I'm going to stop being a karateka now and start being a judo player or a boxer. Uh, I, I, would, I would study them uh, side by side. And of course, you've got to remember what your objectives are. So if, if you are, like I am, that you consider yourself a karateka first and foremost, you're going to these other arts for useful training methods, for uh, live practice with a, a, a different set of rules, if you like, or a different ethos or a different way of doing things uh, and, and you're looking to pick up a few technical skills as well um, but you're wanting ultimately to bring that back into your karate so it would be a mistake if the karate stopped because then you, you, you're taking the energy away from the main thing that you're uh, you're practicing uh, and of course it, it's always going to be you're not going to devote it to you fully so like and I was training in the judo twice a week the guys that I was training with were training about three or four times every single day they were full-time judo athletes you know, so that's what they were doing on a day in, day out basis. So, but I wouldn't have shifted to do what they were doing and, and then have stopped the karate because that would be contrary to what I'm trying to achieve. So, you know, I think it's a good thing. I, I, I think it's a good thing. But you just remember that the karate should be the main thing, the main meal, if you like. And then the other arts are adding the kind of the spices and the flavoring. So if you are cross training, which I think is always a good thing to do, then make sure that your karate, if that's your core art, that's still getting most of your attention. And you're using the other practice to help inform that, that karate and help to, to take it forward. Uh, so the next question we've got is from Jeff Butler. He, he says about, he comes from a dojo where they, they, they spar um, for contact and, and he asks, uh, how do I feel about karate styles and clubs that do no sparring at all? And how much benefit do you feel uh, students truly get as a re result? Um, so you've got to spar. It has to have to drill live. Because ultimately you're hoping to apply it live. So this is why, you know, a grand believer in your, for the self-defense side of things, you do your scenario drills. We have our kata-based sparring drills where we take the techniques from the kata and apply them in various ways against live resisting uh, opponents. You need that. You know, we have the phrase in the dojo, if you haven't done it live, you haven't done it. It's one thing to do it with a compliant partner. It's another thing to do it with an active, living, breathing, resisting person. Um, so you, 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 if anybody belongs to a dojo where they don't do any live training, um, then it may be good as a form of exercise and you may enjoy doing it, but you're doing no self-defense skills there. Because self-defense situations, no, this is a shocker, but self-defense situations are very live. So therefore you need to practice in a live way to be able to deal with them. So I would say no benefit, self-defense-wise. If you're not sparring, um, you get no benefit. Of course, that's the caveat for that is, well, what type of sparring? So you may go to a dojo and say, oh, yeah, no, we spar most of the time, we spar. But if they're always sparring one-on-one, -on -one, and they're not practicing escaping, and they're not practicing protecting others, and, and they're practicing to a limited skill set, so it's always punching and kicking, they're not allowing grabbing and falling to the ground, and they're not doing live drills that stimulate weapons and all this kind of stuff, then again, the benefit they will get is limited, because they will have fighting skills that they are trying to employ in a self-defense scenario. So um, live drills are a must, but they need to be live drills for what you're training for. If you're doing no live training at all, then obviously there's problems. If you're doing fighting training, that could be helpful or problematic uh, for self-defense. And then as regards the full contact side of things, you know, there's an argument that, you know, in a real situation, you're going to get hit. So you have to learn what it feels like to get hit. Well, if you've got gloves on, uh, getting punched hard with gloves on, as much as that sucks, 
feels very different from being punched in the face by a bare fist. Uh, And conversely, hitting someone in the head with a bare fist feels very different to how it does with gloves on. You know, it's it's, it's, it's the, the different. So straight away, you know, you've got this issue. The other thing is as well, you know, we've got to bear in mind that the whole point of our self-defense training is to keep ourselves safe. So if we're going to a place two or three times a week where we're constantly getting punched full contact in the head, that is going to have bad health implications. So there's, there's, there's a balance that needs to be struck there. These days, you know, I'm in my mid-40s, I don't spar full contact at all. Um, I do the full contact on the pads when I spar, it's, it's light. It's, um, I don't do any heavy contact stuff. You know, 10, 15 years ago, we had one day a week where we would do that. Me and the senior black belts would get together. We had this little garage that I owned that we used to go into. It had mats on the floor. We'd put on the kind of boxing gloves and we'd just go nuts and beat the living daylights out of each other in various ways. Uh, and, you, do, you know, you, you, it brings home the chaos of it and, and everything else, but you don't really learn a lot. It's a good tester, but you don't really learn a lot, you know, in, in terms of uh, how to employ skills. I think sometimes easing off that little bit can be better for skill skill development. And again, because you've got the gloves on and you've got the safety procedures, it's still it's slightly more realistic, but it's not real. If you say, okay, well, we're going to take the gloves off and we're going to fight barefisted, well, you get good at taking body shots and kicks the legs and stuff, but you know you don't punch each other in the head barefisted because it's just not safe to do that. So that moves away from reality to a degree as well. So you, there's no way to safely recreate reality fully. We just can't do that. And I think for most people, the idea of, of fighting full contact is, is problematic. It might be fine for some, but if you're a professional, per, aside from the health side of things, if you were a school teacher or you know like a doctor or something like that, a professional person, you can't be turning up to work every other day with a fat lip, a busted up nose and a black eye. It can't be done. I always remember Burton Ingle is a famous British boxing coach. In Boxing Magazine years ago, they did a they used to do these head-to-head pieces where a person would argue one point of view and another person would argue another way. And he argued about it was about full contact in training. Obviously, when boxers compete, it's full contact. But when they train, and, and Bertrand Ingle came out with this lovely line where he said the only time someone should ever get punched full power in the head is when they're getting paid millions of dollars for it to happen. <laughs> so I thought, uh, that's probably true. Um, so there's a balance, I think. You know, that there is a balance. Um, and there's other ways to induce stress aside from impact as well. And we've also got to remember when the adrenaline kicks, it's amazing what your body can absorb pain-wise when that, 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 that kicks in. Um, so sometimes the, the adrenaline is what will keep you going. And there's, there's ways to develop uh, intensity other than just getting punched all the time. Not, no problem with sparring full contact. I'm just saying you've got to be careful of the health. Uh, sparring something you've definitely got to do. If you do no live practice, you've got to have no discernible live skills. But I would suggest it needs to be the right type of live practice. So if you're doing self-defense skills, practice fighting to escape, not fighting to win. If you're practicing fighting to win all the time, that's not the best self-defense training. So. Lots to talk about on that one, and that might be another one to expand into a, a full podcast uh, all of its own, I think. Uh, next question we've got is from uh, Felipe, so hello. Yes, uh, is what part of the fist should we hit with? Differing arts of different views and which one is right? So it's one of the, I, I, this is one of these debates I always uh, watch with interest. 
what Philippe is referring to, obviously in traditional karate we often say, well, hit with the front two knuckles. That's what we're doing. And then you get things like in boxing or certain styles of kung fu where it'll be no, 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 hit with the back three knuckles. And then there's the issue of, well, what gives you the best wrist alignment? And, and uh, how do we make sure that those front two knuckles are making contact? You know, if you, if you kind of kick the wrist a little bit so those front two knuckles are more prominent, it can result in the wrist giving way with impact. So there's, there's loads of these debates, you know, about which should you hit with. But my view on this is it's, a, it's a largely an academic argument because it, it's based on the assumption that you're hitting something flat that doesn't move. You know, so if I'm hitting a flat thing, like the surface of a, a punch bag, you know, I can say, well, I'm going to hit with my front two knuckles, or am I going to hit with my back three knuckles? I, I can choose to do that. But human beings aren't flat. You know, your head is full of twists and contours and turns. So, so when you fire that hand towards that lumpy, moving, uneven surface, the idea that you can say, oh, I'll hit with my front two and my back three, you won't. You'll hit with whatever you hit with. You, you might aim to hit with your front two, your enemy moves half an inch to the right, and you end up hitting with your back three. It, it's an academic uh, argument to me. You'll end up hitting with all of them. So in training, we, we may have a preference. Uh, I, I, when in, in training, I often tell my students that the front two knuckles should be the one that's aligned, because my experience has been that gives the strongest wrist formation. So it's not so much that we're only aiming to hit with the front two knuckles. And the other thing is, if you hit it, I mean, bear in mind how close those knuckles are together. So if you land a body shot, if you only hit with your front two knuckles, that was a bad body shot. Because the fish should drive into the target. So you'll hit, you may hit with the front two initially, but you'll hit with the back three like a fraction of an inch later. So, so I, I, I emphasise the front two for the wrist alignment that I found to be strongest. It, it, it doesn't give much, you know, when it's, it's nice and, and, and straight. You know, if you get it right, it doesn't give. It's only when people get it slightly off that it does. And then we practice the impact stuff. We don't use wrist straps very much in the dojo. So, again, we're always checking that the wrist alignment is fine. Uh, and but then we acknowledge that in reality we'll hit them with the fist. Uh, it may start with the front two, or they may move and we'll hit with the back three. It's always better to hit him than not hit him. It doesn't matter what part of the fist you're making contact with. So while these arguments can be interesting, they're academic arguments, and I think you can make a good case either way. But when reality jumps, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter because you're going to be hitting with all parts of those. You're going to be hitting with your front two and single knuckles and those knuckles because people are bony. People are soft and people move. So, so long as the wrist alignment is correct, so that the wrist isn't going to buckle, I, I don't think it really matters. You know, just pick your choice and run with that. Next question we've got is from Colin Wee, and he talks about, you know, how would we tailor training regime uh, best to suit an individual's body type? Uh, and I think that's important. Um, we, we shouldn't have this kind of cookie cutter karate where we try and make everyone the same. So if we go back to one of the you know early karate documents, so Itosu's Ten Precepts, written in 1908. So if I remember correctly, it's a sixth precept, where Itosu says, learn the explanations of every technique fully, and then decide how and when you would use them when needed. So what Itosu's telling us there is we learn the explanations of, of the techniques. How do we apply this technique? But we as an individual decide how and when we would use them. So, and I try and, I've tried to build that into my syllabus. So, so for example, in, in the early Q grades, they, they learn a whole variety of throws, for example. Some from the kata, some not from the kata, but they, they learn a throwing skill set. And then by the time they hit the upper Q grades, it shifts a little bit. So, for gradings, it, it'll be things like they have to demonstrate three throws. It doesn't name which three throws they are anymore. 
And the idea of that is then the individual will then choose, okay, I've learnt all these throws, but as a tall person, this one suits me. As a short person, this one suits me. Or for whatever reason, this particular throw, I like it. It feels good for my body type or skill level or preferences or whatever it is. So we, we have this level of um, individualization. And I think it's important that we, we do that. I, I have reservations about teaching solely to body type from day one. So, so for example, if I got a beginner through the door and said, okay, you're a short, squatty person, so I'm going to teach you karate for short, squatty people. Anything that I think you may not be able to use, I'm just going to miss out completely and I'm not going to teach you it. Now, what that student's learnt then is a very one-dimensional version of karate. Uh, Now, it may be that there was things I didn't think he could make use of that it turns out he could have done, but we'll never know that. And the other problem we've got is when that individual goes up to teach, he can only teach people with his body type. Because he doesn't know the other methods that might work for a, a taller person or a thinner person, or you know what I mean? He doesn't know those. So what I think is good is we give an overall broad martial education to begin with. And then we say, right, okay, now you've had that, now you're able to choose what works best for you. And, and I think we, we do the same with the bunkai as well, with the kata methods. We choose which methods suit us. And I, I use this example at uh, seminars, I use it a lot. I normally pick a few people out of you know, the, 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 the crowd and just say, right, okay, just imagine that these are Okinawan masters, right? We've got Master A. You know, so whoever that person is on that day, you know, so Bill. This is Bill, right? And Bill knows Okinawan master, traditional name Bill, traditional Japanese name of Bill, right? So Bill, Bill, right? Bill-san says that he has um, he has a hundred techniques So that, that he's got and he wants to teach his hundred techniques. So he teaches them to person B, right? And person B says, right, okay, of those hundred techniques, ten suit my body type. So I'm just going to practice those ten. He then goes to person C and says, I've got 10 techniques, you know, that really work well for me. And that person goes, right, of those 10 techniques, only one of them works for me. So I'm going to practice that technique. He then goes to some, the next person, person D, and says, right, I've got this one technique I've, I've, that works for me all the time. I've got to show you it. And that person goes, I don't like it. It doesn't work for me. So that's karate is dead in four generations. So what should happen is that the, the original master goes, right, I've got 100 techniques. And he teaches them to person B. And person B goes, right, of those 100, techniques 1 through 10 work for me. So, But I'm going to practice all 100. I'm going to have 10 in my theoretical, uh, the whole 100 in my theoretical knowledge box, and then these 10 are in my practical knowledge box. And to his student, he, he teaches all 100 again. And he says, look, 1 through 10 are what works best for me. And a student might might go, well, number eight works great for me, but then it's number 13, 17, 25, you know, and on and on. He picks his, his 10. And, and then it carries on like that through the generation. So we don't lose any skills. There's still a room for the individual to choose out of that toolbox which skills they're going to make use of. And you don't end up with a type of karate that only suits a specific body type either. So So I think we should definitely take into account body type. So I'll give an example, like Uchimate, the inner thigh throw. I remember asking my judo coach to go through the inner thigh throw with me, and he looked at me and said, what do you want to learn that for? Uh, with those legs, you'll never throw anybody, right? So I'm a heavyweight, but I'm a short heavyweight, so I've got short legs. So the chances of me lifting someone taller than me with an inner thigh throw is, is remote. I said I wanted to learn it so I could teach others, to which he said, okay, that's a good enough answer, and then he taught me. Now, if you take Murray, who a lot of you will know from the books and DVDs, uh, Murray's taller than me, inner thigh throw is his throw, he uses it all the time. So I, I understand it, I can teach it, but I don't have the body type to make uh, make use of it. Conversely, the, the throws where you kind of drop down and pick up legs, as someone who's short and with above average strength, they really suit me. 
Uh, for Murray, who's someone who's taller and sometimes has a bit of a bad back, this idea of dropping down a lift doesn't suit him. So, but he knows them, he can teach them to people, he can get people to be able to use them, but he wouldn't personally make use of them. So I think that that's a process. You know, we should definitely individualise, but we should make sure that we don't lose information um, along the way. So I hope that uh, gives you some f- th- food for thought there, uh, Colin. So the uh, next question we've got is Mark from the forum. He said, uh, how do I feel about flexibility training, especially in hip joints? How important is it for self-defense training, considering that you know you want to kick low and not to the head in self-defense? And what would you suggest to increase mobility if necessary? Well, what's your view on stretching in this, in this context? So I, I've got to be honest, I've said this before. Stretching is one of those forms of training that I find mind-numbingly boring. F- physically tough training appeals to me. But because stretching is relaxed and passive, I find it fairly boring. So for me, I I, I trick myself into doing it. I do this thing where just throughout the day, I'll do a little stretch here and a little stretch there. And, you know, I'll maybe do a little bit at the start and end of every session. So I get enough stretching done overall. But but it's not something I, I enjoy doing. I have to kind of force myself to do it, really. Trick myself to do it. Now, in terms of, you know, how important is it to kick to the head in self-defense? It's not. You shouldn't. It's a dangerous technique which you should not try. But in terms of your overall health and and wellness, uh, having flexibility can be a wonderful thing. It's great for injury prevention. It's just great for the overall health of your, your your body. It feels nice when you've been stretching regularly, and you feel nice and you know loose and fluid. So I, I, I would recommend that you know that people do stretch, not so much so they can kick high, and so they can kick well. So when I think of probably the most powerful kicker. I've trained with it'd be um, Steve Williams, who a lot of you'll know. Me and Steve did the Extreme Impact downloads together. You can find them on my my website. Steve's kicking power, as you can observe on that DVD, is just ridiculous. The man's striking power is incredible. You know, he, he, he breaks people's ribs through kick shields. His striking power is incredible. Uh, and when uh, you do the thigh height roundhouse kicks for him, you know, on my thighs through the pads, through this big thick kick shield, I can take one, maybe two, and then I can feel it in my bones. You know, his power's crazy. But the reason he kicks with that power is just so fluid, graceful, and because um, he's very flexible. He works a lot on his flexibility, so he can do these beautiful high head height kicks. But for self-defense-wise, that looseness that he's got, you know, it smashes your thigh clean into. I dread to think what it would be like getting kicked full power without a, a, a shield there. You know, it would be instantly debilitating. So you don't need to be able to kick high for self-defense. You shouldn't kick high. But I, I don't see anything wrong with practicing the flexibility to, that would enable you to kick high because that will help your low kicking too. And, and again, as I mentioned, it's, it's good for you for general health. And on the point of high kicking generally, you know, if you can do it, it can be fun to do. I, I like landing head height kicks when I spar. I always find that an enjoyable experience. Um, it, you know, it's fun to do. They're often unexpected. It's, and also, you know, when, when I'm training my kicking, I like to practice kicking head height because if I can get a full power head height kick off, I'll have no problem with a full power low kick. So for attribute development, uh, high kicking can be good too. Away from its, you know, the fact it's fun and it's martial and fighting use as well. So, yeah, you know, I would de- definitely work on the stretching. In, ter- in terms of what to do, I mean, I, I generally speak to a, uh, a very basic stretching routine, which I just try and say work into my regular everyday life, you know. So, any chance I get, I'll just, you know, quick stretch here, quick stretch there. 
if I'm waiting for the kettle to boil, I'll do a quick stretch. If I'm between phone calls, I'll do a quick stretch. Uh, and they're age-appropriate ones as well. You know, if, if you've come to martial arts late and you're quite stiff, you don't want to be trying to do the splits on the first day. Simple butterfly stretches and things like that would be the way to go, and you just build up uh, gradually. So, yeah, so I hope that's of some use to you, Mark. And Mark had, uh, had another question as well. He said, uh, do you think the karate training should include general sport, fitness, workout elements? like push-up crunches, rope skipping, jogging, agility ladder drills and the like? Or would I say that karate classes should concentrate on karate-specific elements? Uh, and he said, you know, I'm talking about people who train karate for you in sessions at one half hours at a time. In my, my own dojo, uh, for the classes, we don't do a lot of push-ups and sit-ups and stuff like that. I would rather they were doing something martial. So if I want to crease their anaerobic fitness, rather than getting them to do sprints up and down the dojo, I'll get them to whack the pads in explosive bursts. You know, that'll have a physical conditioning element, but of course, they're also working technique, the working aggression, you know, the developing their impact. It's, it's, it's that kind of thing. If I want to develop their strength, rather than getting them to do press-ups and all that kind of stuff, I'll get them to grapple. I'll get them to do groundwork against resistance. So then they're de developing the, the fitness through that specific activity. Now, and now as regards supplementary training, I do think that's a really good idea. I've, I've done that my entire time in martial arts. So, you know, I, I do like using the rowing machine. I do use a TRX. I, I do lift weights. I, I do do a little bit of yoga and stuff. But I, I, that is all done in my own personal training. Uh, it's, you know, when I'm on my own, you know, if I've got a partner, I want to do martial arts stuff. If I haven't got a partner, then I'll lift some weights, go in the rowing machine, do some stretching, you know, whack the punch bag, that kind of stuff. But when it, when it comes to the classes, I, I'd rather, I don't want to spend 15, 20 minutes them doing press-ups and sit-ups when they could have been learning martial skill. So I would encourage my students to do the same. You know, supplementary training is important. Do it outside of the dojo. And you'll find that your performance inside the dojo will increase as a result. So, you know, a lot of my guys, a lot of them run, uh, quite a few of them cycle, um, a lot of them lift weights, uh, quite a few of them go to various exercise classes and all that kind of stuff as well. So they, they do alternate forms of fitness training. And it's nice to have that variety too um, for your solo training. If you're doing karate in the classes and you're doing karate at home and it's all you ever do, it can get a little bit stale. It's nice to say, oh, I'll mix it up and today I'll go for a run or I'll do some weights and all this kind of Good for your general health. And it's good for your variety in training too. And it all definitely helps. You know, it all definitely helps your uh, um, your overall fitness and your martial arts performance as well. So so personally, uh, I'd steer away from doing it in the clubs. We do do it occasionally, but we don't do it a lot. I think you're better off focusing in uh, on your martial arts in the club. We even do that with the warm-ups. You know, those who've been to the dojo know when we warm up, we don't run around the room and all that kind of stuff. We do light sparring drills we do light grappling drills we kind of build up that way so from the very first moment the walk through the dojo till the moment they leave they're doing combative things because i believe that's the most efficient use of the training time that you've got and then they can use the supplementary training um away from the, the dojo of course in the dojo you could teach them what to do you could say you know here's some exercises you can do at home and here's how you would do them properly now go away and do them that, that that would be a good way too but any any class where they spend like 45 minutes playing with kettlebells and running up and down the room and then do 45 minutes of martial arts at the end we'll do 90 minutes of martial arts you'll get better faster you know because that's what you're there for that's what you're there to learn
So the final question we've got is from uh, Peter Jones. He said, you know, it's a podcast coming out near Christmas, so let's have some fun. He says, Santa wears a black belt, so what martial art does he do, and what can we assimilate from his skill set? So there was an argument that Santa does ninjutsu because he sneaks into your house undetected. <laughs> um, or there's an argument that, you know, looking at his physique, maybe Santa does sumo. I don't know what martial arts Santa does. But I'll tell you what, though, from a self-defense point of view, you can argue Santa's got it mastered. Because uh, Santa is uh, hangs out with good people. You know, spends all his time with elves in positive pursuits. He's making toys. He doesn't hang out in bad places. He knows who's naughty and nice. Then he's nice to nice people. He hangs around with nice people. He doesn't visit the naughty children, right? So, uh, so again, Santa hangs around with the good people. He's friendly and happy and smiley. And who on earth wants to punch Santa? So what can we assimilate from Santa? Be nice, be kind, be giving, stay away from uh, bad people and engage in positive pursuits with positive people. And if you do that, then all the other martial stuff that we do, you know, you'll never have to use it and we can just all, you know, enjoy the practice of martial arts for the practice of martial arts and just have some uh, fun with it. Well, thank you very much for listening to this uh, podcast and obviously a big thanks to everyone who submitted questions for it. Uh, lots of good ideas for future full podcasts in there as well, so I'll be sure to follow up on uh, on a few of those. Um, also, thanks to everyone who told me what your favourite podcasts have been over the last 10 years. As I say, I've been using to, that to inform what I'm going to include in a limited edition book to celebrate 10 years of the podcast. So if you uh, watch this space or listen to this space, <laughs> um, I'll be back with, with more on that uh, very soon. So, And a big thanks to everyone for the support in 2016 as well. It's um, uh, everybody helps me do what I do, you know. So if you attend the seminars, or you're buying the books and DVDs, you're an app subscriber, then obviously you help provide the finances that keep everything rolling along and allow me to put out all the free YouTube videos and the free podcasts, you know. Because I say the free to it's podcast free, but it's taken me, you know, a good bit of time to put it all together, and, and I can only do that because of uh, the financial support that uh, people provide through the seminar attendances and hosting and all that kind of stuff uh, and if you're not one of those people you know but you're still someone who spreads the word about these things who tells people about the the youtube videos who tells your friends about this podcast that all helps too so i you know i'm uh, really glad that you know there's a good number of people who find what i do to be of use to them and uh, um, it's nice to know i'm of uh, worthwhile service so so thank you very much to everyone for all your support in 2016. I hope you have a great Christmas or whatever it is you happen to celebrate at this time of year. Uh, we'll be back in 2017 uh, with our all-new podcast then. So until there, uh, take care, and uh, I'll speak to you soon. Okay, take care now. Bye-bye. <laughs>